Welcome to a new edition of the Neon Jazz Interview Series with jazz bassist, composer, and producer Daniel Foose. He is releasing his new 2016 CD of Water and Ghosts on October 7, and he's a very busy cat. Originally from New Orleans, but he was raised in Austin, Texas. His father played the guitar and piano, and he was in and out of the studio, and Daniel was there with him as a child. He would go on to North Texas University to get the good jazz education, and these days he's performing with Tony Bennett and Lady Gaga on tour and has logged some quality time with a lot of heavy jazz cats. So get to know Daniel and dig this interview, my friends. Hey, thanks for taking a little time out for me today. I appreciate it. Oh, yeah, of course. So before we get into of Water and Ghost coming out on October 7, I want to just get kind of an idea of what's going on with you as far as activity, you know, touring, anything that's going on with you. Well, that uh, CD release for that show is going to be November 22nd, Tuesday. But outside of that, I've been doing uh, some sideman work, touring around uh, with a few different projects. Um, mainly, uh, of late, the, the highest profile one I've been doing is with Lady Gaga and Tony Bennett. I've um, been doing a few gigs with them over the past year or so. Hopefully, private events, fundraisers, and that kind of stuff. Also, touring around, doing some uh, on the swing dance circuit with band called Professor Cunningham, uh, led by a great saxophonist, Adrian Cunningham. Also, I co-lead a band called the Gold Magnolias, which is a funk soul band that I play uh, electric bass in then. And we tour usually about twice a year through the U.S. and play pretty actively in, uh, in New York. You know, it's interesting. I've always thought the dynamic of Lady Gaga and Tony Bennett has been pretty interesting, not only on paper, but in reality. They do really well together. What's it like to be around that with such an age difference? They come from two completely different worlds. How does that feel to be up there gigging with them? It's interesting because they, they, they come from very different generations, but also they, they kind of have some similar uh, cultural backgrounds in their in their Italian heritage, which they both are very uh, hold on to very proudly. And also from, she's from New Jersey, and he grew up in Queens, so there's definitely a connection there. She's very deferential and respectful to him, of course, and, and he's he's just very hip to be around, and, and likewise with her, just great great to work with, and, and they, they have a, just a really nice dynamic between them, too. Very cool. So let's go ahead and get into Of Water and Ghost. I've listened to the album. It's a great album. Talk to me a little bit about kind of the motivating forces that went into this, and kind of take me into the studio. How did everything go? <laughs> This has been a this is a very personal project to me. Uh, this is my debut record. Composing the music, I went down to uh, my family's land uh, down in Mississippi for about a month and was able to just go to some specific places with my bass, compose uh, a lot of the material for the album that way. So in that way, I was really hoping to get a sense of place and kind of hopefully imbue the music with a feeling of the place that I was writing about. In terms of the studio, we were I was really, uh, really fortunate to have a cast of amazing musicians helping me and a great string quartet with uh, Maria Eam and Tomoko Omura and uh, Allison Clare and Jennifer DeVore and Sebastian Noel on guitar and Keita Ogawa on percussion. And I just couldn't have been more happy with all of their effort and, and love that they really put into it. It was amazing. We were actually able to track everything in one day 
and so we had a we had a few we had to you know one, one one person had a flat tire and we had a no-show viola player who who will, will remain nameless but um it all came together and and yeah I was just really really happy to have such a great group of musicians well and as you touched on a little bit about your past you were born in new orleans and raised in austin and mm-hmm. i know i know your father played the guitar and the piano and was a scholar in new orleans what was it like to grow up with him being in music and just how how did it infuse you to not only want to get into music but jazz specifically? I was super super lucky to be born in New Orleans. Didn't live there very long, but raised in Austin, where the music scene was just so fertile. And I mean, still is. It's such a great music town. Aside from being a, a scholar of New Orleans music and a um, great songwriter himself, my dad also in Austin was a producer of uh, a lot of blues artists. He would often just let me come hang out at the studio while he'd be producing different artists and I would just kind of be able to hang back and see this process going on and getting to go hang backstage with a lot of, you know, his buddies who were local musicians. And it was always just uh, presented as this really fun thing to do. It was never really forced on me and I was just given a lot of opportunities. The music education system in Austin is, and in Texas in general is really strong in, in the public schools. I had a lot of great music educators in, in junior high and in, in high school that really helped me along the way. They had a great jazz band in um, Keeling Junior High led by Mark Gurgle that I attended. And, I mean, we even had, like, Wynton Marsalis came and did a clinic, you know, for my seventh grade, you know, jazz band. So there was a lot of great culture coming through Austin at that time and and uh, a lot of great jazz happening in Austin as well. At 12, you start out on the on the trombone and the bass. Why did the bass went out for you? I, I don't know. I think uh, I just started working more with the bass in, in high school. Just professionally, I ended up uh, started gigging out a lot more on the bass. Still pick up the trombone every once in a while, but it's uh, it's definitely not uh, not a, not a fun thing to hear. Um, <laughs> not for public not for public consumption, I should say. But I, I don't know. I just uh, I fell in love with the bass. And my best friend growing up was a guitar player, and so I kind of wanted to always wanted to jam with him, and that seemed like a natural fit. So. Cool, man. So let's stay in the realm of childhood, so to speak, or your or early formative years. And I want to know, was there a real seminal jazz album that you listened to that was like, wow, this is amazing? I remember hearing all the, a lot of the classic records, but I remember one, one record in particular that really, that I got turned on to, I was at a, I remember being in a music camp at the University of Texas, and another student hit me to this, uh, it was a Dave Holland record called One's All. Uh, which is a solo, just solo bass record. And I just remember listening to that record and just this being an off, someone could do that on, on the instrument. I'd ne- you know, I never heard anything like that. So I feel like that opened a door for me, just seeing what was possible on the instrument and seeing how expressive it could be uh, just all by itself. And what a master he is. And, and of course, just exploring more his, his music. And then that led me back to his influences and, uh, Getting really into Coltrane in high school, like I think a lot of people do, and into into all you know, all the Bop guys. But but I remember that record in particular really was like a a, a door into a into a whole world. So was it always music for you? I know you grow grew up around it with your dad, but was it always kind of a foregone conclusion that you were getting into it, or did you have some kind of other ideas of how your life would turn out? I don't know. I never. It was always just um, kind of the, the funnest thing to do. I was really into science and math in high school, but high school also had a really good band program. Uh, you know, I really enjoyed that aspect of it, or if not the same. So I, I just kind of uh, gravitated to the thing that was the most fun, which was getting to play with my friends and getting to perform for people and 
that was just always such a blast and continues to be. So, yeah, that's why I chose it as a career. You would mention, you know, high school at one point and, and learning and Dave Holland and Art Langston in, in high school was really big with you learning the acoustic bass. And then you went on to get involved with the Austin scene. How big was that? How big was his uh, teachings for you in your life? Oh, it was really great. He was, um, I mean, he, my, my dad, I feel very privileged because since my dad was a producer, he knew every musician in town. He knew all the best teachers. So he could, he really was able to kind of find the, 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 the best cats to come and hang out, hang for me to hang out with. And it was really, it was really cool. But uh, Art was really a great teacher. He was a great electric bass player and a great acoustic bass player. And he really had a, he got a, he's really humorous and has a really fun spirit about music. So it was really a, it was never very uh, dogmatic or too serious. It was always presented as like, well, you know, here, learn some tunes. What tunes do you want to learn? Okay, let's 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 check those out. It was very self-directed, and but it got a great perspective because he was such a great professional in the arena, and really gave me a lot of insight into the nuts and bolts of being a professional bassist. Of course, your education moves on to the great uh, North Texas University. What did you learn there in a formal environment that helped you so much to strive in the current music world? Countless things. I mean, I, I spent a lot of time there because I did my, my undergrad and master's there and got to study with the great Lynn Seaton, so I got to spend a lot of time with him. I, I had taken some, some a few formal bass lessons, but really never studied it on a real technical level until I got to college and, and and that was just, um, I mean, technique-wise, you know, Jeff Bradisich there um, is one of the most amazing uh, bass professors in the world for, for the classical side. And just getting to be around him and getting to um, really like the outside of just, of course, the things that all, the, you know, you get as a student in the college. I feel like especially the things that I really benefited from was getting to play with the professors quite a bit in both formal and just informal environments. They were very nice to me and, and, and very, like, welcoming to me and able to and, and willing to play with me, I feel like. So that that was really cool to just being able to relate to the faculty members on the bandstand in a way that was a little more like a musical peer than a, a student, at you know, after a while. I learned so much from, especially from Ed, Ed Sof, the drum, the drum professor there, and Stefan Carlson, who was the piano professor there at the time, and Dan Hurley. Yeah, just count, countless lessons about writing and arranging, and 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 I feel like especially North Texas is, is really near Dallas and Fort Worth, so you get a lot of access to just working early on as a professional uh, rhythm section player. Most of the freshmen and sophomore, you know, bass and drummers, bass players and drummers are working at least a couple nights a week with different singers and instrumentalists around town doing club dates. So it's a real fertile learning environment, both academically and just real-world level, too. Well, it, and obviously everything has gone pretty well. You've shared the stage with Jimmy Cobb, Terry Lynn Carrington, Benny Golson, Michael Weiss. There's been so many people that you've shared the stage with. What has it been like to be around veterans? And what do you learn as you kind of grow into your own sound in jazz? I don't know. I hope I'm growing into growing into my own sound. I feel like it's just a constant constant process of learning and, and trying to yeah, trying to figure it out. But being around the veterans is it's amazing to see the humility that a lot of them still uh, issue and uh, the childlike curiosity that a lot of them have. I would say that being around Tony Bennett, especially, like he's just got the, he just, you know, he just had his, his 90th birthday, but he's still got this spark 
that's still, and I think that's the thing that um, when you see all these guys who are still doing it, you know, at 85, 90 years old, and I think it has to be that, that curiosity and that uh, that humility that just kind of keeps them learning and keeps keeps them keeps them striving, despite their you know legendary status and greatness. You know, people we can just say, oh, y'all should just you know, you could just relax, you know, where you're at, you know, but they continue to continue to push, you know, you see these videos of Sonny Rollins talking about, you know, him still practicing and trying to be a better musician. So that's, 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 I guess the thing that those, those older legends all have in common is just that still sense of being a student and sense of still, still pushing. Yeah. And I think that's a part of the reason why they're so good is because they're always humble about it. They're always striving for sure. Yeah. So you make the move to New York City in 2008. Was that a big shock for you to go to New York, or was it kind of a logical geographical leap for you? I mean, I'd always wanted to do it. I kind of had my eyes set on it, but it was definitely a definitely a culture shock for sure. And, you know, I've been here, what's it, eight years now about, and still getting used to it in some ways, I feel like. But, but yeah, it was. Uh, it definitely takes a few years to get your feet wet, I feel, well, for me at least. Like some people get hit the ground running, but you definitely, you know, first year or so you still not don't have a lot of gigs you know you're really just trying to meet as many people as possible and network and you know scrape together whatever whatever you can to try to make it work but kind of cool i think the it's a it's a it's, it's a hard but fun you know really fun process and i mean new york is just such a playground for musicians it's it's just the funnest place to be so the first time that you really started you know playing on larger platforms and with bigger musicians and bigger venues, were you kind of be speckled by it, or was it just something that? I mean, you've been around music for so long in studios. Was it just kind of another place, or did you get kind of wrapped up in that notion of where you were? I mean, there's definitely the the the, the Lady Gaga thing is a pretty recent recent thing for me it's in the past maybe year or so, and that that definitely feels pretty surreal <laughs> at times. Just trying trying to get more more at ease with with those kind of environments but really I've, I've what i've come come away with it is it's like you know whether you're playing on a big stage for a whole lot of people or you're playing in a club and there's nobody there or you know whatever the situation is it's just you and the instrument and the musicians you're playing with so it's really it, it really is just the same thing all the outside stuff changes but really if you could kind of remind yourself that oh yeah it's just we're just here playing music then kind of keeps keeps it all on a certain certain level of doability. <laughs> yeah. You know, what I'm, I'm interested in, too, is, you know, you've, you've had albums as a solo cat. You're obviously collaborating with Tony and Lady Gaga. And then you have these bigger outfits like the Brian Newman Quintet, the Brooklyn Jazz Orchestra. How do you keep all that straight? How does that make you grow as a musician to be in kind of smaller settings and bigger settings? How does that work in the entire jazz soup of your mind? It's great. I mean, and I think, well, uh, for one thing, that Brian Brian is the uh, Brian Newman is is uh, Lady Gaga's uh, music director for her jazz show. So that's we're, we're tied in with that um, that particular group. A lot of bass players, especially, and well, drummers and piano players, rhythm section players, especially in New York, can all attest to the fact that you end up doing a lot of different kinds of gigs. I love it. I think it's like musical circuit training. I, I definitely enjoy sometimes being in situations that are outside of my comfort zone. I always am able to learn a lot. And especially in New York, there's so many different types of situations that you end up in, especially, you know, as a, as a bass player, you'll be playing with a cabaret artist and you could be playing a filling in for a rock gig. And then 
you know, going and doing a classical soundtrack or something, and then a and then a you know straight ahead jazz hit later that night. It's great. I think it all kind of it all feeds each other. You're able to carry different aspects of one to the next and builds you as a. I think it builds you up as a stronger musician. Let me ask you this: Who are your jazz heroes? I mean, you've mentioned some folks here and there, but who would you consider like your bona fide jazz heroes? Well, definitely, like I mentioned, uh, Dave Holland. But Ray Brown is definitely my number one bass guy. In terms of just overall music, I love. I mean, Coltrane probably not my number one cat, of course, like so many. But yeah, I think I think mainly a lot of those cats are really, really my main influence. Ray, Ray, Ray Brown in particular, such a strong presence on the bass, and just everything he touches swings so hard. I feel like I always go, I always go back to him. Well, let's whittle the list down a little bit here. If you could go back in time, if you could get into that jazz DeLorean and see a show, who are you going to see and where are you going to go? And, and what year? I would go back and see... Louis Armstrong and his Hot Five down in New Orleans, mid late twenties. Yeah, because I think that would be really cool to hear that sound live. Because it gets so much on the record, more you know, just hit that tone. So I can't imagine what that tone must have sounded like, you know, up close and personal. So let me ask you a generic kind of general question: Why do you love jazz? It's really fun. I don't know. It's just a lot of fun to play. It's one of those things. That's, I guess it's kind of like learning a language, where the more you learn the more gratifying the conversation can be and the more enriching the literature can get. So it's really a process that seems to get, you know, the more comfortable I am on the instrument and just with jazz language, it seems like it gets more fun and more fun. So I don't know, it's just a great, it's just, especially when you're working with, with friends, it's like you, you have the bet you have in the green room conversation. I was just playing last night with, with, with Brian Newman Quintet and we were at the Iridium and it's just, we're just such a great group of guys, and it's, we're just hanging out backstage, just talking like musicians do, and then we just go up on the stage, and it's just like, there's, it's really just a continuation. It's just like, oh, yeah, now we're just using different, you know, different words, you're just using our instruments, but it's really that same same kind of humor, still able to kind of just carry on that same conversation. It's really, I think, jazz affords you that, that kind of uh, interplay that's really fun. Yeah, very cool. You know, I'm always interested, too, with the jazz, the health of jazz in America in 2016. And every time I hear about New York, it sounds like it's just as good as it always has been. So my question is this, how healthy is jazz? I think jazz is healthy. I'm sure it depends on who you ask, of course, and everyone always bemoans the, you know, the good old days, I feel like, regardless of their, regardless of their generational place. But it's changing, but... I think it's it's healthy to see things like, like John Baptiste on on uh, on the Colbert show and seeing a lot of kind of crossover stuff where instrumental music is being presented in a cool you know in a really cool way by musicians that are really can really play. So I think that 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 to me is is a good sign. I think everything's kind of cyclical. I feel like maybe it's kind of reached a point where people are tired of the maybe a little bit tired of some of the machine-driven music and they want to hit a little more organic stuff now. Maybe that's kind of coming into fashion a bit. I think the swing dance thing is coming. There's a new resurgence of that. It's kind of helped fuel this whole trad scene in New York. But I feel like this, the you know new new music scene in New York is, is really strong. There's still a great audience here and a lot of you know great patrons of jazz and a lot of, a lot of great clubs. And a lot, a lot of new clubs opening too. I think, I think it's, I think it's a good time. 
So speaking of audiences, what has been one of the best things that a fan has ever said to you about your music? I, I'm just really happy with, with, with really any kind of reaction. I, sometimes people, I think the, the coolest thing is when someone has, comes up and just says, thank you. But you can see there's a certain look in their eye where they really feel gratified. Like they really, you could tell that they, that they, they understood. They got what you were trying to communicate. And it's not even a, yeah, I guess it's not even a thing that I can put into words, but there's a few times in my life, I could say maybe, maybe half a dozen I've had that happen where someone comes up to me very genuinely thank you with this look in their face where I was like, okay, we had some kind of connection there while, while the music was going on. Everybody has a version of who you are, your family, your friends, your business associates. But when you wake up and face the world, who do you think you are? Oh, <laughs> who do I think I am when I wake up? I feel like I'm, I'm a very fortunate person who's really lucky to get to play in the sandbox every day. I, yeah, I feel, I feel really, just really, really fortunate in, in every way about about all of the things that have that have been so lucky to happen to me in my in my life and my career, you know, it makes me want to work harder and keep trying to pursue, you know, more of my own artistic vision too, and keep writing more. Man, I like that. I like the box. <laughs> That's awesome. Hey, Daniel, thank you for taking some time out today talking to me about your album and your life and music. I appreciate it. Oh well, I sure appreciate it, Joe. Thanks, man. Thanks for listening and tuning in to yet another Neon Jazz interview where we give you a bit of insight into the finest players in New York, Kansas City, New Orleans, and spots all over the world, giving fans all that jazz. And thanks to Daniel for his time, his music, and all the stories. If you want to hear more interviews, go to Famous Interviews with Joe Domino on the iTunes Store or visit the Neon Jazz YouTube channel. And you can always get everything Neon Jazz at the neonjazz.blogspot.com. Until next time, enjoy the music, my friends. Neon Jazz.